Justin Peterson. And I'm Brian Lee. Welcome to the Voice Culture Podcast, where we traverse the rich historical legacy of voice training from the greatest minds and teachers of the art. Each episode features lively conversation, fascinating historical insights, and practical application for today's singer. So we have to talk about something that is, um, I think, near and dear to both of our hearts. Yes. Tonight, today, whenever, is this idea of masculinity in singing. Oh, and what yeah. that means. Sure. And I've written about this. You've written about this. Yep. Um, and I want to just take a deep dive into this topic because I think it's something that, as male teachers, we have an interesting perspective on. Yeah. Um, that we can talk about Great. in terms of uh, our, vent, our viewpoint and how we are thinking about this and sort of pitfalls and historical precedents and things like that. Okay, so... Uh, masculinity and singing. So are we going to be talking about um, how uh, a man presents himself vocally? Or are we going to be talking about how teachers operate in the studio? Or are we going to be talking about what kind of values they pass on or kind of all the above? I'm going all in. All right. Cool. (laughs) Cool. I'm going all in. It's so interesting. That's cool. That's great. Yeah. Um, this sort of all started for me years ago when I wrote this blog post about the low male voice mm-hmm. and how the low male voice has changed dramatically, at least in a classical context. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, one of the things that I was jokingly say about low male voices is they're really great in opera and they're really great in country music. I've always found like opera and country music can be two great places for like low male voices, or at mm-hmm. least two genres of music that tend to be very open armed. You know, when you talk about Broadway it, today modern Broadway. It's very yeah. hard to find a low male voice role for a bass. That's in right. A Broadway yeah. show. Yeah. Um, everybody's like, high, higher, higher, highest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but one of the things that struck me as I listened to a lot of early 20th century male singers, low male voice singers, was the flexibility of the sound, yes. the brightness of the sound, mm-hmm. the youthfulness in the sound. Yeah. Uh, that was at a very marked difference between what maybe modern aesthetic classical male low low male values are today yes yeah um and how that sound has changed over the span of a hundred years yeah the low male voice um even in something as fundamental as intonation (laughs) right Uh, tell me more well the centering of a pitch Right. Oh, uh-huh, I mean, uh-huh. when a when a blowsy, blowy kind of lower male voice gets into that place, it's very difficult to even ascertain what pitch is he singing on. Yeah. What yeah. pitch is that? The clarity and true trueness of the pitch, um, because it seems to be uh, dressed in loudness. Yeah. Right, and the loudness becomes the uh, impressing uh, factor. Of the yeah. voice. Yeah. That one is sort of bowled over by the loudness of the cannon-like sound. Um, yeah. And so I just noticed that, you know, I, I grew up as a young singer listening to Nelson Eddy. I know mm-hmm. that's going to, I mean, I'm, I wasn't born in the 20s, I swear to God. I just, <laughs> just I wasn't born back then. You, you throw there, back you. The, I know, it's terrible. <laughs> but, you know, when, you, when I was a young singer and I heard Nelson Eddy sing, I thought, wow, well, that is a great male voice. Yeah. Um, clean, true. Um, the vibrato is, 
is perfectly balanced, you know, in that cycles per second. Mm-hmm. Um, a resting, but also a beautiful tone that he didn't have this, you know, there was nothing ugly in the tone. It was inspiring to hear as a young yeah. singer. Yeah. The beauty of that tone um, and the uniqueness of the voice that you knew instantly who that was. The, I felt you know, the same way about John Raitt. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But it was just the kind of singing that I'd never heard before. But the more I listened to these um, early recorded male voices, mm-hmm. the more I found similarities in their musical approach. Um, the, you know, we have, you and I have talked about Robert Weedy. Yes. Uh, whose voice is just as bright as the sunshine. Yeah. Um, and you can understand everything that he says. Um, John, uh, John Charles Thomas is another one that we that I've talked about in the past as well, mm-hmm. as well as the um, French uh, bass Paul Planson. Yes. There are some incredible recordings of his coloratura that are yes. just fantastic. I mean, just you you wouldn't hear a bass trill today like Paul Planson. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's incredible. And then Victor Morel, uh, the baritone, the French baritone Victor Morel. Um, it's a very different acoustic. Uh, or it's a different aesthetic, I should say. Yeah. Uh, and it is a different acoustic because well, you, yeah, yeah, the throat isn't arranged in the same way, I don't think, uh, for resonance strategy as it is uh, today in today's world. Right. Yeah. The, sort of the low larynx that you and I have talked about in the past. I've seen right? um, the virus. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so since that's so expected, uh, I, I'm reminded of discussions I've seen online among uh, voice teachers talking about trying to figure out types, what type of voice a student has. And you'll hear references to, if it's dark, it has to be mezzo-contralto or bass or baritone. And if it's bright, then it's higher. And there seems to be, there there doesn't seem to be the possibility of having a low, bright voice. Or for that matter, a dark, high one. But there's definitely a dark value. Or a low voice of joy. Yeah. Yeah. A celebratory, bright, happy, low male voice. Yeah. I was thinking about this, and this is going to sound like I'm crazy, but I'll tell you a singer that I was listening to the other day that's not an opera, but I thought, what a happy voice. Burl Ives. Oh, yeah. I was listening to Burl. I thought, what a joyously happy lower male voice. Yes, indeed. You know? Just yeah. folksy, not not pretending to be operatic at all. Yeah. But that lower male voices can have joy in them and have happiness in them. Everything seems to be so dirge-like. Right. You know. And I, I, I have a theory about that, Brian. Oh. <laughs> what, what is, what is it's not my theory. theory. It's not my theory. It actually comes from a book written in the 1950s called The Voice of Neurosis. Oh. And... Yeah, right? Great title. Written Mm. by a psychiatrist who sort of uh, mm, codifies in a way or goes into how the voice is a reflection of the inner psyche. Oh, yeah. And how it how we communicate, how we how we talk, the pitches we use, the, the tempo we use indicate our inner psychological state. And one of the things that he talks about in the book is the archetypes these vocal archetypes, which we have obviously in opera when we have soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Right. But he speaks of them as a psychiatric or a, or a character trait. Okay. Right? Does he we, use uh, timbral terms or how, how does he describe um, these voices? So, well, basically, here's what he says. And I want to kind of parse this out because I think it's a great quote. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is from The Voice of Neurosis in the chapter called Acoustic Dimensions of Voice. Um, 
It says here, quote, Operatic history gives a continuous record of vocal types which represented personality types Mm -hmm. to their contemporaries. This is the only source which gives us very precise information about prevalent vocal identification during the lifetime of the composer or what his genius anticipated would follow. Hmm. Wagner anticipated female emancipation by 30 years in creating the dramatic soprano. Since opera is exaggerated vocal expression, since it is written around the voice and not around the word, one finds a surprising parallelism in its vocal creation and the vocal expression in neurosis. In opera, we find the father type, the mother, the non-maternal type, the childish and the childlike voice, the representative of high principles. We find extreme masculinity and extreme femininity expressed by nothing but the voice on a level which was at one time accepted as characteristic. Opera expresses types in our present-day generation in an inadequate way. Hmm. Screen and playhouse stage are more up-to-date. Opera changes more slowly than popular mores, a cultural lag. Vocal fashions change faster in our day than ever before. And this is written again, remember, 1950. Mm-hmm. More people are more quickly influenced. The phenomenon of experiencing voices through the many sources of vocal reproduction today may be the cause. So that's written in the 50s. But I think it speaks to an archetypal sound that we try to go for. Right. right? Right. This sort of the extreme masculinity. And we I mean, we're not really obviously talking about too much about femininity today. Uh, in our in our conversation, but mm-hmm. this extreme masculinity of the sound that comes in uh, that oftentimes isn't balanced by its opposite mm-hmm. in the ma- in the speaking in the lower male voice, yeah, uh, is something that I think we should talk about more. Yeah, and you know how does the how does masculinity rep- represent itself in this voice in terms of. Uh, you know, I think about a singer like Lawrence Tibbet, right, who mm-hmm. was a phenomenal baritone, early 20th century baritone, but was also able to bring a sound of what we would think of, a, yeah, a more feminine sound, right, through the upper register. But do it so that it was beautiful. But it was also an expression of vulnerability and of sweetness. Yeah. And I find that that is a quality in the lower male voice that is sometimes lacking. Yeah. Sweetness and vulnerability. And when you say lower, but boy, it's a big argument in the in just the tenor subset too. Oh, right. Be- because there's there's a, there are such wide ranging ideas, you know, about how you get up there and what you do when you're up there. When, right. When, when you're right. when you're above high G, for example. Exactly. And What's happening? what is happening? And, um, you know, you get you get uh, people talking about a head voice element in the sound, or you had people like Gigli, you know, who said privately that, you know, didn't he have that phrase, something like falsetto accomodato or yeah, something falsetto like accomodato. that. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he was saying, yeah, there's falsetto in that sound up there. Um, and then you have tenor, you know, uh, so-called experts about tenor voice who claim, no, there's no falsetto in the modern tenor sound, and it's it's been an undesirable thing for, you know, 180 years. No, you know, right. no one sings that way. It's chest all the way up. Or at least it needs to sound like chest all the way up. Right. 
And well, those are two different arguments, aren't they? They are two different arguments. That's two different arguments. And I disagree with both of them. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think the people who sound chesty all the way up uh, are, are doing what we would call pure chest. And uh, I certainly And those that do sound like they are. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to say, right? Those well, who think they are singing in chest all the way to the top sound like they are because, oof. Yes, yes. Talk it, about suffering of the tone quality. Yeah, you know. it gets stringy, it gets flat. It, eventually it, it doesn't center on a pitch or vibrato um, that that works well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's interesting what you just read about uh, current times in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Being in the 50s. More, be more up to date, like in the more in other forms, other genres. Um, I'm thinking about like in our uh, pop music today. Uh, you have people uh, all over the map in terms of what you might put a masculine or feminine label on. You know, like mm-hmm. Sam Smith. Right. Right. You know. Uh, well, I'd say it's flopped. Don't you think it's flopped? I think that the pop world is flopped in that women now are chestish or chesty dominant, yeah. and the men are. Falsetto dominant or head dominant. A lot of that. A whole lot of so that. So upside yeah. down. They flipped upside down. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, and that's just, you know, that's, that's, that's modern aesthetics. I mean, uh-huh. at the end of the day, that's aesthetics. I always talk about the Broadway. You know, we can't go back to 1837 and hear Gilbert Louis Dupre sing right. his high C to yes. say to ourselves, what is that sound? Mm-hmm. However, we can listen to the earliest recordings of Broadway and listen to the, the transition of vocal emission and style that has changed just since Broadway started in, you know, yeah. when recording in the 20s. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a massive vocal change. Yes. From 1920s to 2020. Yeah. In the past 100 years of how mm-hmm. things have changed. And we have recorded evidence of it. We can listen to it. Right. Uh, we don't have that of opera to be able to track or trace those developments, sadly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think the... Uh, the argument could be made, obviously, that, that styles have changed. We have talked in the past that one of the things that people got sick of in the, in the 19th century, before this high C of Dupre, was that men were showing off the falsetto too much. Uh-huh. That it was becoming a cloying aff- affect, and people were kind of like, ugh. In other words, the, the, we could say, to use just a, a, a term, the, a, the feminization of the voice was becoming boring to audiences. They wanted to hear maybe something more virile, something more masculine in the sound of the male voice. And that when Gilbert du- Louis Dupre came along, he said, here I go. And everyone in Paris went, yes, this is what we want. Because <laughs> really, they set the style. If the public had said, oh, yuck, we don't want that, 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 that whole high C debacle would have been a footnote in history. Yeah. But it, the Parisian audiences went nuts for it. And then, of course, once something like that happens... And yeah. the floodgates are opened. Yeah. Then everybody's looking to do that, right, and make those make that sound. Yeah. And poor Nuri, his his uh, arch his nemesis, Adolphe Nuri, the French tenor, had to go to France, uh, Italy and try to figure out you know how to get that, and he never could really succeed in doing it. And um, died a miserable poor, man. Poor man, <laughs> he jumped on his death. Sad guy, poor guy. I think there's a sculpture of him in the Paris Opera. I had my picture taken next to it, and it was like frowning because I was like, poor Nuri. All he wanted to do was sing. <laughs> but um, no, I feel like the mask. I mean, I think listening to early recordings of the male voice are very informative, at least when it comes into a classical style. Yeah. Um, obviously, in Broadway, it's the same, because if you listen to male voices in the early 20th century, listen to how many lower male voices were on Broadway as compared to today. Yeah. 
I mean, holy crowley. I mean, yeah. there were so many more lower male voices on Broadway than there, there are today. Well, a lot of the Golden Age musicals would ha- sort of have uh, certain uh, uh, templates for casts that were not mm. so different from opera in that right. you would have uh, you know, some low male protagonist. Mm. You'd have some chipper tenor. You'd have the comic <laughs> character who was the, the belter. And then you'd have the ingenue soprano. Right. And, you know, in opera, you have these similar kinds of uh, archetypes, yeah. archetypes to get in vocal variety. And, and uh, it's interesting how I had a, one of my voice teachers said, you know, in the Golden Age musicals, the baritone always got the girl. And yeah, in opera, very much that way. And in operetta. opera, the tenor gets the girl. Right. You know, and, and uh, they live in the operetta world. No one dies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like in most cases in, in the light musical theater fair of, you know, like Franz right. Lehar, no one's keeling over dead at the end of the show. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But where do you think this this um, let's go back to like the, the basses and baritones where, yeah. where today we see. Uh, I see even in young up and co- so-called up and coming baritones and basses who I see featured in opera and song recitals and so forth, th- this incredible darkness imposed onto the sound. Yes. Um, and even at a young age, these 25 and 30 year old guys have a vibrato that's yes. on the slow side. It's yes. slow and, and large and only gets slower and larger yes. until the voice falls apart. Not to mention an inability to differentiate vowels. Yeah, right, right. Right, what so I called that, omnivowel. With that lack of... It's all the, sort of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Why has that happened, do you think? I mean, what, what brought that about? I, real, I, I wish I could say. I wish I could say. I, I feel that we've often talked about who are you listening to. That, that comes down to a big, who are your models? yeah. Right. Who are your who are your sound models for singing? Uh, And it's really going to depend on who you're listening to. The other thing that I would say is. The person you're listening to that you love may not be doing the things that you think need to happen in your throat to make those same same sounds. Yeah. Do what I'm saying? A, A young baritone. 17, 18, 19, 20, somewhere. And maybe, you know, a little bit. I would say young baritones are young for a while. Uh here's let's say someone that they respect and admire and they begin to imitate that person yeah thinking you know well i'm doing what they're doing in some cases you might be but in some cases you may not be i think it depends on who your model is mm-hmm. right um i you know coming back to nelson Eddy, nelson Eddy learned taught himself singing by imitating great baritones on, on 78 records mm-hmm. so i mean that worked for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think they're like, we've talked about David Clark Taylor before the author of those books who talks about the ear being so important Yeah, and how important it is to hear and listen uh, as a great teacher. And I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. You mm-hmm. know, we can obviously do a whole podcast on ears and listening. Yeah. I, I couldn't say where it comes from, but I, I wonder, first of all, is it psychological? In other words, is it a desire to be pompous or to show off or to, demonstrate a quality of sound that's predicated upon a certain value artistically yeah rather than what's natively in that voice Mm -hmm. or what's germane to that function um i find that sometimes there's a braggadocious quality to the sound Mm -hmm. rather than a directness or an authenticity to the sound 
which maybe that comes with the territory, right? Maybe it's like, I have to make this. I mean, this is what we talk about functional versus aesthetic. Mm -hmm. I have to make this sound because this is the quality of the sound that is expected. And so therefore I have to make this sound. Maybe the whole recording industry of the last hundred years, maybe that's also been part of what accelerates young classical singers desire to, to jump ahead to making sounds and being in a kind of repertoire that isn't appropriate for them. Uh, you know, I mean, I see that in 20 year olds who are telling me, you know, they're, they're Wagner's singers. Yeah. I had you that know, too. I've I'm had just that. like, you're, you're in your twenties, man. Yeah. And they're like, I'm going to, you know, and they can't, you know, I'm like, how's your lyricism? How's your, how is your scale? Can you sing a perfectly modulated scale from bottom to top? I mean, these are important questions. Yeah. I mean, Wagner's greatest, uh, one of his great influences was Bellini. So why shouldn't, you know, Wagner be sung as beautifully as a Bellini opera or a Donizetti opera? Yeah. To my experience, it should be, you know. And those great early Wagnerian singers of the 20th century had lovely, gorgeous voices. Yes. Beautiful tone. Yeah. Helen Traubel, my goodness. Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kirsten Flagstad. Yeah. Gracious. I mean, any of those people. Beautiful, beautiful tone. But even Flagstead said she'd get these letters from girls saying, oh, you know, when can I do Wagner? And she's like, Wagner? She's like, that ends your career. It doesn't start your career. <laughs> yeah. And you I, know? I think that the, the, you know, mass appeal of recordings and maybe the kind of opera repertoire that young folks sometimes fall in love with is the big, big stuff. Yeah. And uh, I think it's true in Broadway, too. Everyone wants to sing high. Yes. You know, it's either got to be high or loud. And that's that, That's how you show you're a real singer. I mean, we get that on American Idol. We get that on um, right. uh, any of the t- TV shows. Nobody turns around until somebody hits a high note. Uh-huh. Because yeah. the high note is the, is the sine qua non of, of the voice. And, oh, that's what shows that you're a singer. Right, right. So yeah. loud in the world of opera seems to be that thing. Yeah. Yeah. They, loud... Um, and disguised under terms that describe size, you know, they talk about the size of a voice, a big voice, mm-hmm. or that oh, the size, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's not like not like. <sighs> You're talking yeah. about size, like as in Freudian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pro- yeah, most likely. Yeah. Well, Freud didn't. Freud was kind of right about the obsession with size, was he not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least in terms of the... I mean, this is that thing Witherspoon talks about. He says that's the last thing to put into a voice is power. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about masculinity in terms of what do we think of when we think about masculine sound? What does that mean? Like, let's, let's well, sort of parse that Well, that's a good question. Out. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's, there's sounds even um, that cross, cross uh, uh, biological sex that sure. we might call more masculine. Or, sure. or feminine. I mean, you think of of someone like uh, uh, Sophie Tucker. Sophie Tucker. Yeah, <laughs> good example. You know. Yeah, you know, uh, Carol Burnett singing "Shy" and "Once Upon a oh, Mattress." Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, just just uh, booming. Our gal Ethel. Yeah. Ethel Merm, the Merm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there's there's um. But I think, like, I'm thinking of some of the fabulous old school lady opera singers who yeah. had masculine elements to the voice yeah. that really worked with the feminine. Totally. Um, you know, the your your Italian sopranos, like we were talking about before. Um, you know, your Tabaldi and Scotto and 
and uh, that where there's that, and it isn't just about how do they sound on low notes. It's an element of, of, uh, I guess the element of power is something I associate with so-called masculinity. Yeah. yeah. Um, and virility, or, virility is a good word. Yeah. Viral, like you know, that's sort of a gendered, right? Yeah. That's non-gendered. I mean, this idea that the sound is virile. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's, a, or steel, the, the metal Steely. and the steel yeah. and the, um, and then there's a whole thing about if you start talking with the teachers and tenors about tenor voice and what is squillo? Is squillo mm-hmm. a high element that is brought in by head, or is it a chest element that's only an overtone of an extreme uh, chest dominance, or you know, it's probably some kind of blend uh, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. of some kind of coordination that's just so hard to talk about that we yeah. usually fail. But um, yeah, masculine. So the thing is, when I hear uh, a, like a say a Messiah soloist, so you have something written for bass that's in a very traditional bass range, and usually done with a smallish orchestra so that it doesn't require loudness but you can kind of see what is the singer's taste in terms of you'll see some guys to me matt when i hear and i think it sounds masculinized to me to my way of thinking it sounds a little bit put on a little Mm -hmm. bit puffed up a little bit phony like someone's putting on armor um like it's over i like the word overcultured. i use that a lot uh-huh. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. it's 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 a little too overcultured. Overcultivated. Yeah. <laughs> There's our word again. But it's kind of overcultivated. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem real. It's it's no. it's uh, it seems very false. Yeah. Yeah. And some a lot of times when you watch the guys sing too, you will see a kind of physicality that Singing that way, maybe it requires, but but they they don't look free and happy when no. they're when they're singing super no. dark and super loud. No. It has a a, um, a way of looking a little bit stressed and angry in the face, yes, yes. which and is braced, interesting and terrifically braced. Yeah, yeah, right. Like if it's like a like a warlike. Yeah, I would love to. I have never seen film of say. Uh, we is it weed or weedy? I think du- it's Robert Weedy. I think we- it's weedy. Yeah, I think it's weedy. Th- yeah. That fellow, you know, I've heard recordings of his, but I've never seen film of him singing. It'd be interesting to see some of the folks, uh, what they looked like when they Visual. sang. I'd be very yeah. curious about that. Some of these these uh, brighter voices in general. When I see films of most opera singers from way back, like let's say before color film was common. Uh, it just there, there's usually a lot less visual effort. Oh yes, you know? oh yes, it's so poised. Yeah, every yeah. all of those artists, artists seem so poised. Yeah, and the, the the big voiced ones and the smaller voiced ones and the high yeah. ones and the low ones, it just they don't seem to be working so hard. Yeah, and yet they're getting so much for the bang for the buck. Yeah, at least my that's what I hear. Yeah, when we talk about our work and we work with, with when we work with students. Um, you know, one of the things I have always conceptualized is there is a masculine element in every voice and there's a feminine element in every voice. And in a, in a functional mind frame, 
you we use I use registration to affect those uh, manifestations. And it's interesting as we work on a voice what happens to the person as those registers are developed. Oh, yeah. In terms of uh, sense of self. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a big, big proponent of isolation and integration. And integration is a very important thing. You mean isolation in terms of working on the different yeah, registers? Exactly. Working mm-hmm. on the different parts of the voice, right? Mm-hmm. To, yeah. to sort of differentiate their muscular activity. Mm-hmm. As a, as a thing, yeah, uh, and then integrating them together into a which is what when I speak with my therapist friends, that's exactly what they say they try to do in therapy, which is integrate. It's not about isolating and saying, "Oh, this one's bad," which we see in pedagogy all the time. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's that. about saying this is a component of the sound. Mm-hmm. This is a component of your voice. Mm-hmm. Let's look at it and let's bring it into the fabric of the entirety of the sound of your voice. Yeah, that's what therapists do. Yeah, right. They say let's look at all your stuff and work to bring you together based on all the stuff, rather than saying, "Oh, you get angry. Oh, you should never get angry. Being angry is bad. <laughs> no one likes an angry person." Right? I mean, what I kind see of your point? Uh, you know what I mean? What kind of therapist would that be? Right. They'd say, "No, look, you have anger in you. Let's figure out how to work through that anger and how to demonstrate it in a way that's healthy." Well, hello. Let's do the same thing with the voice. Yeah. You know, let's bring it all into a system and bring it all together. So, in a way, it is the yin and yang, right? The voice is the yin and yang. It is the masculine and the feminine that we are working to bring together. Mhm. And I have found in my female clients when I work chest with them, they become more communicative. Hmm. They literally talk more. It's as though the voice has been unlocked. Shyness begins to go away, and they become more emboldened, and they speak more, and they talk more. Because I think that that assertive masculine chest register energy has been exercised. Fascinating. And I see the same thing in... Well, this is another thing that we can talk about. This... Uh, how gay men react to masculinity. Yeah. And singing. Right. You know, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. But but the fear of those sounds, right? Maybe in the in a gay man's life, those sounds are associated with some negative impact on him in the past. You know, that mm-hmm. some man made those sounds and those were seen as threatening or scary. Yeah. And so some gay men will will affect a higher speaking voice or whatever because of the fear of that uh of of facing those sounds because gay men can make those sounds too sure yeah yeah i mean there boy there's layers of you know i was just thinking like you may hear a i've had some students whose uh speaking voices we're very much at odds with what we discovered when we explored their singing voice. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah. I can think of one young man who's in college now who uh, had a beautiful tenor voice, uh, and he sang mostly uh, popular styles. He he wasn't really into classical, um, except he sang in a madrigal group at school. But um, you know, his big thing was not pop was uh, was the popular styles, and. He loved singing up in his high voice, and he loved integrating all that. Mm. But when he talked, it was really, really, really low in a uh, down in Fryland. Fryland. <laughs> and then I've had other um, guys who are a little bit timid and afraid to explore the lower voice. Mm. That's not common, but 
I've had that happen. Well, the thing is, with an awful lot of men, young and old, I've found a, a, they're very chicken about exploring mm. the parts of their voice that are that are unusual or underdeveloped or unused mm-hmm. or that don't match what they think their, their vocal self-concept. identity. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the that's the masculine argument against the upper register youth. Yeah. You know, um I've had some some male singers where I am doing what I would call exercising falsetto and falsetto function and I've learned I can't say that word. So I don't. No. I used another word. Of course. And they're much better with it because falsetto really has sets it off. A yeah. bad connotation for some guys. Mm-hmm. Uh mm-hmm. You know, it's a cop out. It's weak. It, it's girly. It, it's girly. It's fruity. Right. It's right. Uh, n- um, it, you'll hear I've, a bunch of classical people I've heard say f- two ridiculous things. I feel one falsetto is of no use in male classical singing, and the other thing I've heard teachers even say is women don't have a falsetto. Well, yeah, that's, that's and the idea that, that one voice can have something called falsetto and the other can't. Can't. Well, right. what the hell are we calling these parts of the voice? But I, right. yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> if you take a larynx out and you set it on a table, yeah, from right. anyone, right? It's going to be your. You'll be hard pressed to tell. Oh, that's a male larynx, or that's yes. a female, unless you have looked at a lot of laryngeas and can differentiate that. The na- you know the general person can't. There's no designation of difference. I mean, right. if you looked at pictures, it would be. Very, I mean, if you looked at pictures of vocal folds, it's almost. I mean, you'd have to have an expert eye. Yeah. To see differences of, of a male and a female larynx, because there are many men who have very small laryngeas. Hmm. And there are women who have very capacious and large laryngeas. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. The um, yeah. It's so it's it, it's so wild about self-concept versus what that voice natively can physically do yes and get trying and what to get the that allows about. it to do and what the, yes yes yeah in other words you can do it you just don't let yourself do it mm-hmm. that's big mm-hmm. that's big and yeah. that's where that mental roadblock comes in with a student where you know you want them to do this and they're like oh no i'm not going to do that that's dumb or that's not me what that's you know what is that sound um, that's not how you know just because there is a, a spice in a dish and you can't taste it at the top of your palate doesn't mean that that spice isn't in that dish. Uh-huh. It's in yeah. there. We heard yeah. Andrew Garland say that. Yeah. Andrew Garland said that in an, in an interview where he said that, you know, it's in there like a cook. He knows how to cook, put that ingredient in there in such a way that the person listening won't know it's there. Yeah, but exactly. It's there. It's been put into the sound. Yeah. So I think, you know, the the issue with masculinity is it's there in everyone's voice. Mm-hmm. Everyone has some kind of masculine energy in that in their voice. Yeah. Just there. Some power factor there. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent it's present in a voice is very telling. Yeah. As a teacher. Because it gives you some insight into how things are working and how how robustly things are working. And that's why you and I have talked about it's and and this comes from Tietze too. Ingo Tietze's article about the restricted use of the mammalian larynx when he says, you know, go full go full blown into the voice. You know, you make big sounds. 
do sweeping, you know, slides and things. Yeah. Do a full yeah. range of motion of the instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a, a voice teacher who wants to be a functionally oriented teacher should look at those things and say, yeah, the voice should do this and it should do that too. Mm-hmm. And loudness is one of those elements. Elements. For sure. In my studio, we do lots of shouting and yelling. <laughs> and not just because of the singing. <laughs> but no, getting, this, getting the quality of that sound is so important because that is the strength factor. Yeah. It's not necessarily the stamina factor, but it's definitely the strength factor. Well, the, yes, that leads to something I just scribbled a note about, which is the, the more fatherly, teacherly side of me. When I hear these men... Uh, who are not old, who sound old, mm. they, they, they have an overly darkened sound. And why do I say overly? Well, it's overly if the sound that they're making uh, doesn't allow them to center on a pitch or to have flexibility or to yes. have clear vowels or, or to uh, express many moods. You or know, sing if, a scale. Yeah. If those things yeah. can't happen, then, then, then what the affectations they're putting on the voice are a problem and if they're in that state, they're also going to, there's not going to be good longevity. They're not going to be no. able to sing well for a long time no. if they are singing somewhat well now. Um, well, and the, the, I've always said this. I'm always amazed. If you look at Hollywood, Hollywood worships youth. Yeah. They worship it. I mean, you know, you've got to look young. You've got to get plastic surgery. You've yep. got to appear at all times that you are gorgeous and beautiful. Yeah. And only in singing in the operatic context do we want people to look, sound older than they are. Right. Where somehow age is seen of as a virtue. Yeah. Whereas we should be saying, why can't, we be, I mean, not the saying that, that that is a healthy model in Hollywood because people get older. Right. But my goodness, why shouldn't a voice retain freshness? Yeah. And it's and youthful vitality into its older years. Right. Why? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, vo- voices will, even a bright voice, will naturally get slightly darker. Sure. Over decades. Sure. <laughs> right. See Morella Freni. Yeah. Right. Who started out as a very light Susanna soprano and then ended up singing very, you know, momentum, let's go and lots of heavier dramatic repertoire sure that yeah. happens yeah sure that happens yeah and uh but but you know it, it can't be it can't be rushed you know uh you no. the 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 voice that works the best is is and by working the the, the functional values you know the flexibility yes. the ability to sing soft if you need to sing mm-hmm. soft the ability to sing legato the ability to uh, form good vowels and mm-hmm. and variety of articulation you know yes. the if if the voice can do all that, then let it be. You know, right? Leave it leave it alone. <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. there are a few naturally dark voices, but the boy, the preference seems to be to darken everyone. Right, at any cost. Yeah, I mean, I listed like I said, the historical record of those singers that are recorded in the early twentieth century to my ear do not sound overly dark. Mm-hmm. There's some darkness there, of course, but they don't sound overly dark yeah at the expense of the text so if i'm looking at this from an anatomical perspective about this darkness thing the lower the lowest constrictor the the pharyngeal constrictor and the the lowest one um attaches to where the cricoid cartilage is in the front so it sort of wraps around there well Mm -hmm. that's sort of in the neighborhood of where the cricothyroid muscles are and the cricothyroid muscles are those muscles that stretch the vocal folds 
So yeah. if you have this battle going on between a cryco, um, between the cricothyroids trying to stretch, and then this constricted musculature in the back pulling the opposite direction, uh, uh, you're going to put a cap on the ability of the voice to sing any higher notes. Yeah. Or, or flexible coloratura. Yeah. Moving scalar passages that require the larynx to be free. In fact, you know, we know Rossini called him Gorgeggi mm-hmm. for a reason. Yeah, Gorga war- from warbling. throat. Yeah. Warbling, right? Throatings. Yeah. Right? That the throat would be free enough to move. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I need a male. Uh, I need. Uh, here's my needs, Brian. My needs are important. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, my needs are the only ones that matter. Uh, I need a male voice that's bright. I need a male voice that also has warmth and depth in it. I need a male voice that has flexibility. I need a male voice that can crescendo and decrescendo. Um, I need a male voice that can articulate well. I need a male voice that can sing uh, vowels clearly and distinctly and be understood grammatically as they're saying words. Mm-hmm. That's all I ask for. Yeah. Santa. <laughs> That's a big sock, dude. That's a big, you know, bring it on. I, but, you know, those are values. Those are values that, that sure. have an outcome. Yeah. The voice can either get louder or it can't, or softer or it can't. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. voice can either sing a clear vowel or it can't. Mm-hmm. These are objective things. These are not subjective artistic values. Right. Of, oh, I don't like that sound or yeah. that's pretty or that's ugly. Yeah. Is the voice getting louder and darker? Okay. Or, or I mean, sorry, louder or softer? Great. Cool. Yeah. We got some something good here happening. Does the voice stay on pitch? Great. Can the voice get louder and softer and stay on pitch and stay on vowel? Hello, Mesa di Voce. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Uh, that's a great marker for what's going on in the voice. So those are those are... Those are systemic desires across all singing styles. So the male voice shouldn't be in any way um, denied those things. Oh, yeah. In any way, any more than a coloratura soprano. Right. They should have, there should be an egalitarianism across the board mm-hmm. for that, mm-hmm. those functions. And in because, a way for, for uh, trying to see how we can be more open-minded, I feel looking at some of the popular genres, you know, some, some of the really highly uh, esteemed popular singers uh, really have a wonderful playfulness mm. in, in how they go from, from uh, gentle to strong and high to low and masculine to feminine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, uh, people like Adam Levine and, uh, Bruno Mars and and uh, well, like a Beyonce, for example, mm-hmm. too. You know, yeah. the, she 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 really makes all these amazing sounds, and some of them are are quite, you know, uh, you know, warrior princess, belty <laughs> big, right. and some of them are very gentle, and some are bubblegum pop, and some are and yes. and at, because in in the outside of opera, outside of classical music. You are allowed to make many more kinds oh, yes. of sounds, and it's all good. All can yes. be good. Yes, exactly. And boy, I wish we gave a little more leeway in classical, um, you know, to to allow, especially for young singers, to allow their voices to be more in line mm-hmm. with what their young voice can do, and and yes. what will allow it to bloom and be able to do those musical things you just said. Absolutely, and that comes with looking. Very skeptically at the aesthetic. Yeah. You know what I mean? That that's, yeah. that prioritization is, is well, that's down the road. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that we don't listen aesthetically. 
Yeah. And people and there's some people who don't agree with that. You know, think you oh, should I know. always listen to you should listen aesthetically to everything. Or right. Like, well right. knowing something is good or bad or if I like it or I don't like it doesn't tell me how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't tell me how to get in and make it work better and to get the sound I want. Yeah. It's confusing, as we have often said, confusing cause with effect. Yeah. And listening to the effect and thinking that, oh, we'll, we'll just reverse engineer and that will get us to cause. No, it will not, darling. Yeah. <laughs> cause is cause, effect is effect. And that's as old as the hills. That comes in all, all those old texts on singing. It, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, also, sometimes it's just a matter of education. You know, a lot of times in a lesson when I've guided uh, a singer to recordings and the YouTube's especially fun because then they can see how old it is or or see what the you know what fashion the person was wearing or whatever so they have a sense of how things have changed over time and they listen to some of these older singers and they're like wow that's really cool that's really nice I mean there are some young people like late high school who decide they like classical a lot of the things they've listened to and a lot of the beliefs they absorb about makes a good opera singer or a good classical singer are pretty warped. Mm -hmm. And um, if they can see some examples of, of, uh, uh, you know, brightness and clarity and a, and centered pitch with a, a smaller vibrato, um, they need to at least hear those along with all the other stuff, Mm -hmm. with all the other grandiose type of, you know, 40 and 50 year old people singing, Puccini. Right. Um, Broaden your model base. Yeah. Broaden your model base. Get listen more. And so important for the, you know, to to our point of uh, about masculinity, too, is um, thinking about when I think of tenors and baritones and the moments in the music that convey power. Well, yeah, that's we understand that pretty easily. But look at the parts that charm people. Or make people swoon or bring a tear right. to the eye. Right. Those those are not hyper masculinized moments. No, they are not. Seymour Seymour Bernstein, I don't know if you ever saw his documentary about uh, you know, his musicality and his life as a pianist, talks about masculine and feminine energy in music. Oh, just interesting. like you're describing. And how those moments are the moments that make the audience weep. Yeah. The the soft feminine moment. There is, I'll tell you, and I'm gonna nerd out here, one of my favorite moments in opera is in the recognition scene in Simon Bocanegra, where the baritone recognizes his daughter for the first time. And they have uh-huh. this beautiful love duet between the two of them, of, of you know reconciliation and meeting each other. And at the very end of this moment, I believe it's an F, natural, that the baritone sings mm-hmm. on this exposed F, the word filia, fi, so he's singing oh, the E vowel, so e, yeah. in this beautiful mezzo, uh, mezzo voce sound that just comes out and just is one of the most beautiful moments in that Verdi opera because he's just saying daughter, daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's just a father's expression of love for his daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's makes, gives me goosebumps. Yeah. But you know, that, that, the, these composers weren't aware of those powers in the voice. <laughs> I beg to differ. Yeah. I beg to differ. I mean, Don Jose's aria, when he desc- when he ascends up to that high note in the, the flower aria, that's a decrescendo, not a, yeah. not a crescendo. Yeah. Bizet wrote a decrescendo to that top, I think, B-flat. Well, and a Bizet... Je, si j'étais une chose à toi, that goes up to a B-flat decrescendo. And so does the aria in Celeste Aida, I think. Yeah, there's that a, ends... There's well, a soft... 
It's yeah. diminuendo high B flat PPP. And, and uh, I was also thinking of uh, Pearl Fishers, the, the, mm-hmm. the big Pearl Fishers aria with all the, all the high Bs that are soft and the way it's scored, it's, it's uh, muted harmonics in the violins. I mean, it's, a, it's a incredibly soft sounds in the orchestra and incredibly tender moments. And you absolutely cannot belt those Bs or it sounds horrid. Garish, um, yeah. And what you end up doing in order to make that happen, I haven't heard anyone who I wouldn't say had, you know, like the ratios of falsetto and chest are, you know, you're pushing 80, 90 percent falsetto to make that happen. Mm, um, mm, but you can't mm. say that in a lot of no, no, company these days. Verboten. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, so bring this all back, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of just center the conversation. We yep. have both elements in our voices. Yep. We have the masculine uh, part and we have a feminine part and we need to integrate the two of them. Yep. Agreed. And that comes in terms of not only our musical life, our vocal life, but in terms of who we are as people. Yeah. That we balance the masculine and feminine energies within ourselves. Gets into what it means to be an artist. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that's the shared humanity. Yeah. That we all have with each other. Ah. That's what makes us, you know, brothers and sisters. Amen, brothers. And not strangers, right? Yeah. So more of both, but not too much of one, because that's not a ba- that's not a balance. That's yeah. where you get the toxic masculinity, right? Yeah. That it's too much, and you've ruined something. You've ruined its ability to be beautiful and sweet and loving and gentle. You know, if you want to close this out with something funny, go on YouTube and just watch dads crying. <laughs> oh. I spent the past couple of days just watching dads cry. I'm just like, <laughs> this is great. You know, all these robust men just breaking down in tears and you just cry because you're like, wow, this is beautiful that these men are able to have these emotions. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we are two as singers. We should have those. We should have those feelings of beauty and sweetness and love. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this was great. I think we took on, we talked like magpies here. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us today on the Voice Culture Podcast. For more information, connect with us on our website, thevoiceculture.com. <laughs>